May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that a mishap not come about through us, and may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is to may that it is to whore, and not regarding something which is to whore that it is to may. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. So, um, I have been uh, just reflecting on where we're at in this uh, in this short study, and I keep uh, I keep being haunted uh, by one of the classes we did recently, where Judaism cannot accept a Messiah who dies. So you could have been the Messiah, but you died. So now you're hosed. So sorry. Now, if you come back. Still an opportunity, but you're not. And, they don't dismiss uh, you, they just don't accept you. Well, right, you're not the Messiah at that point. So the, the, the question that keeps coming to my mind is what we discussed after that, um, because while Yeshua did die, and I am grateful that he did die, by the way, um, he did rise again. So he's alive. That should be, and was for Paul, a seminal moment. This should be a, a high watermark, and uh, and I'm trying to to see in the scriptures some validation of that. And right now, I'm not finding that. And uh, as I'm arguing, of the resurrection with, or of the yeah, significance of it, of the significance of the resurrection um, in the Tanakh. And as I'm arguing with Taylor back and forth every day in our in our emails. Um, yeah, he's he's pretty crisp uh, when it comes to uh, knocking that one down. Well, the, the two that jump immediately to mind, you may have already referenced these, um, is in the Psalms where it says, you will not allow your Holy One to see Sixteen. destruction. It is correct. Um, which is the reference that Peter uses. And he actually makes an argument based off of that, saying this can't be talking about David because he's still dead. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you also have the following reference, uh, the Isaiah 53 reference that talks about seeing the seed. Um, there's a couple of references there that implicate, that indicate uh, no longer dead, post whatever happened, yeah. the affliction and everything. In the classic Yeshua lines, is God the God of the dead or of the living? God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Therefore, well, that's about the resurrection, resurrection in general, though. Yeah, well, that's, that means that there is a resurrection. That's not the question. Right. The question is, cool sound, um, the resurrection is is the the fact that he's been raised from the dead, um, which uh, just Taylor as my uh, my uh, current sparring partner uh, would say is a not proof that he is the Messiah. B is not proven beyond a, a doubt anyway. And C, where does the Tanakh say that the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead? And so uh, it seems to have little merit for him. But it just gnaws at me that yeah, it was it was so important. Yeah, I mean it's just it's a it's a perfect picture of what happened, and yet um, it, it's like we're stealing, we're being accused of stealing lumber from the sages' methodology in order to build our worldview when we try and apply. Yeshua's life to anything in the scriptures. 
and it's annoying to me. And I can get past it. But I've not been able to come up with a, a good argument to say, other than to say, if you don't believe the apostolic scriptures have validity, if you can at least accept that they are historically accurate and are supported by other extra-biblical documents, which they are, what do you do with Yeshua if you just say he was a tzaddik and died? Even if he rose again, what do you do with the guy? If he rose from the dead, it appears to me in the Tanakh that God always uses an agent of causation to make that happen. Whether it's some dead guy's bones, or it's a prophet, or some tzaddik, God always uses a causation agent. And in Yeshua's case, he predicted how he would die, he predicted when he would die, and he predicted when he would rise. And he didn't have anything to do with the latter. Which means that God himself raised this man, going right back to Psalm 16. So what do you do? doesn't really fit the Lord, liar, lunatic paradigm. It does. That, that I mean, it forces, it forces it. Yeah. Right? It's the bad man argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think right? that you, I mean, that's the thing is, again, it depends on what people accept. But if you accept the, the accuracy of the apostolic scriptures, even if you don't accept the inspiration thereof, then presumptively you're accepting the statements Yeshua made about himself, and you're accepting at least what the authors said other people were saying about him that he didn't dispute and whatever else, sure. which I think makes him a, um, which as we're, as we're saying here, you, you're forced into having to either dismiss you gotta, him you gotta do or you've got to make him something right. really important. And to me, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say, okay, forget what he said. Forget what everybody else said. Forget everything about it, just that the resurrection did occur. Which is another fact that you have to accept, though. Right. But, but there is, I think, logical reason to do so. Well, Josh McDowell is making a great living demonstrating that. <laughs> right. You know, there's, there is great logical reason and argument for such. Um, Peter Kreef's got a great set of, of logical arguments to say you don't have to accept anything, anything regarding the, you know, the, the apostolic writings or anything like that. He just goes through just a logical argument. There's, there's only seven things it could be, or four things it could be. And, uh, and he lays it out. But if, if you don't want to accept it, you're never going to accept right. it because you won't have any evidence. But right. to me, even if you throw away the apostolic writings as anything that you, want, you would want to read, if the resurrection occurred, I think it puts Yeshua in a situation that I don't think the Tanakh, or, or I don't think Orthodox Judaism is prepared, seemingly is unprepared to deal with. A guy that is raised from the dead without an agent means that God himself, since he's the author of life, raised this man. Now what are you going to say about him? Okay, I don't think he was the Messiah because he died, but he was raised from the dead by God. Right. I okay, um, well, the Messiah can't die. Well, I guess he can, but he's, you can't call him the Messiah until he comes back. Okay, I get that. So what about in the in-between time? If he's still dead, I get it. I can deal with that. But he's not still dead. I, th- I think personally it's almost humorous in the sense that like, it feels kind of like you're in this um, ultimate Messiah Twilight Zone 
as far as exactly what you do with him now. Yeah. In that, like, you have... He is Messiah. He dies. He resurrects. You have that stamp of approval. And now he's gone. But he hasn't come back yet. Right, so now... But he's we, planning to. Right. And so it's like... And, and he's true to his word, so you know he will. Right. So you've got basically the situation, I think, that you're left with is an interesting and unusual blend of historical fact, um, uh, text that you have to accept on faith, and then concepts that you have to accept on faith. And that it, I think that's really what it boils down to, is what do you believe? And I think that's really true of all of the Tanakh. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, nothing in the Tanakh, I think, can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt um, if, you, if you want physical, hard evidence. Um, but that's, I mean, goodness, we live in a, in a universe where we're constantly having to accept things based on faith. That's how our, our world is constructed. Yeah, that, that argument's not going to work with the Orthodox Jew, though. No, I know. I'm just saying that, I'm no just saying that at some level, I, at some level... But, see, that's not true. It comes down to what you they, choose to believe. They, none of them... From I agree I've with heard, that. None of them, what I've heard, have been convinced based on argument. They've been I, convinced I, based I, on something inside. Everyone has something different, you know, some other text that made them start questioning Yeshua and then start digging, you know. That's always the story you hear. You never hear of like, man, I was just listening to this preacher one time. Or, I get that. You know, I was just I listening to a guy who had a good argument. I get that. But here's, here's the thing. And, and we'll close it up so you can give us a little review here. But I, I, I have always wanted my faith to be as authentic to back when he was walking around as I could make it. And I think we all would prefer that. That's that's the purest and cleanest uh, view. And I think we would all agree to a certain extent, more modern Orthodox, today's Orthodox Judaism is as close as we would get. It's got its hang-ups and it's got a, a degree of baggage, but it seems to be as close as we can get. However, as I look back, the forefathers of today's Orthodox Judaism, of the rabbinic movement, Many of them came to trust Yeshua as the Messiah. And all they had was the Tanakh. How come we can't do it? Well, they also had testimony that is valid. Their testimony, people, not, not, not in the same way that we do is written down. And what were they testifying? To the fulfillment of the Look at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Right. Andrew says to his brother, Hey, found the Messiah. Come see. I, really? So how did they vet him? They knew. How, why, would, why would a very wealthy, well-to-do, got-it-together guy like Joseph of Arimathea not only believe that he was the Messiah, but then bury him in his own tomb? Well, we hopefully we'll get a chance to address a couple of those, um, you know, Clause B clues later when we talk about Sanhedrin 98. Because there are several of those. It doesn't really talk about he's going to bring them to the four corners and the little. Sure, yeah, yeah, it yeah. highlights the small stuff, yeah. like what you're saying, that I think would have been some of the some of the hints along the way. So, yeah. To that, to your point, I think it's important that we remember that we only have a place in the world to come. We've only been introduced to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have been blinded, partially. Had that not happened we would not have an opportunity. And because that's happened, we should not look down upon them yeah, or, or get frustrated that we can't convince them that Yeshua is the Messiah. Right. I got over that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I thought I did too. <laughs> I thought you, I did you know, too. you do bring up a really good question that we could explore at some point of like, why why was Messiah the first thing that a lot of these guys said when they got introduced to Yeshua? Because if you just take what Judaism understands as Messiah, none of those things are even close to being are happening at that moment. So they must have been well, thinking they, of some other categories of things. Well, they were certainly looking for a political Messiah, a physical one that would... Right, get them out under, like, from under the because at the world. time that he started coming on the scene, like he basically just taught a lot of cool stuff by that time and was really, really low key. Right, like, and then yeah, somebody pointed was no, out, was like, it Peter or somebody pointed out? I think there's a little more to that. But hey, Peter pointed hey, out last hey, week. Gentlemen, how are you? That, that one's right, open right there. Hello, man. How you doing, sir? Good to see you. Oh, he's doing better. He's at home now. Good, praise God. Yeah, praise so, God. Yeah. Can I get off of every morning trip now and just move to like every other day? What's up? We got a spot right here for anybody. All right, thank you. Yep. All right. What's going on? Good to see you too, man. Yeah. All right. We just did a little warm-up thing talking about where we're at. Okay. Just, just to throw on a couple of a little bit of two cents to your yeah comment slash question time Yeshua shows up on the scene there is a there they are they are looking and expecting the Messiah to show up absolutely mm-hmm. so the question is why were they expecting him to show up at that time mm-hmm. because they were ending they were they were ending the fourth day as it were and beginning the fifth day and the fifth and sixth day are called Yemot HaMashiach the days of Messiah mm-hmm. And the fourth day, this is all patterned after creation, right? So the fourth day, what happened on the fourth day of creation? Was it the planets? We have oats, right? We have signs in the heaven. One of the ideas there was that the fourth day, because the the signs were given on the fourth day, that was uh, a hint that Messiah would show up some you know sometime on the you know towards the end of the fourth day and so they were they had an expectation and rightly so and guess what they were right he shows up well not only that but Daniel left a whole bunch of guys whose lives he had saved looking for an oat right and they saw it and showed up right so um, so I think just based on my studying some research, I mean, the fact that we have you know some some Jews who identify the Messiah and say, well, "Yeah, we found him. Come check him out." Um, at least in part, is a function of the fact that perhaps the society as a whole was very tuned into. Waiting, they. I mean, they really thought that Messiah was going to show up, and they were right. But the generation was not ready to receive him. They didn't repent, which is also an understanding within Judaism. Messiah can come at any time, and if and if. The generation is worthy. If they repent and they're worthy, his coming will be hastened. 
Right. So. You, yeah, you have to wonder. You know, dumb fishermen, I get. Hey, found the Messiah. Really? Cool. Let's go see him. Kind of thing. Yeah. Pharisees? They, these guys had, had to vet him. I mean. Well, I think it's why they were following around for so long. Yeah. I yeah, think it's yeah. oftentimes forgotten. It's assumed by the church that they're following around to try and find something wrong with him. Yeah, they, but they, I think the opposite is right. true. They didn't go all the way to the Galilee to find something wrong. I they think were they were investigating. Him. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I, I think as we like pointed out a couple idea. times before, um, identifying the Messiah, or who you think is the Messiah, prior to a lot of stuff happening, is not unusual. It's happened at least three times, four times, um, besides Yeshua. I mean, Bar Kokhba is leading a revolt, so that's at least a military exercise, but he hasn't claimed a victory yet. I don't think that um, Shabtai Sfi had really done anything of, of messianic significance from that perspective, other than being, you know, a leader. Um, and then Schneerson is, again, a leader. He's well-respected, he's adored, and he's very humble. And so he's a very righteous man. So he hits, like, the character qualities. But he never even set foot in the land of Israel. Yeah. So the idea is that I think that like, to, your, to your point earlier, like why are these guys looking at Yeshua thinking he's Messiah? It's like this is almost ingrained that there's there's something more than just the big stuff that clinches that he's Messiah that we're looking for. Yeah. There's got to be. I, I grant right. you that. It's al almost as if by the time this big stuff happens, you, you, you you're know. a little too late. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're just now believing when the exiles are being gathered in, there's no more evil. <laughs> like all of these crazy huge things, it's like you missed the boat. <laughs> you just woke I, up? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I, that was my point cuz like I'm just looking at the the list of things and it's like, oh yeah, none of this was happening at that time. Universal worship of God, like complete peace and harmony, resurrection from the dead, like all this stuff. You know, he shows up on the scene. That happens doesn't... in my house almost every day. <laughs> but it could happen. All right, it so, have, uh, right. so you're going to start us off here with a review of this awesome book. Did I get the right cover? You did. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So this is... Most uh, colors of any book I've ever seen. So I'll, I'll pass this around. You guys can flip through if you want. Um, so this is actually going to be a partial book review because I actually have not finished the book. So it's Mashiach, Who, What, Why, How, Where, and When, written by uh, Rabbi Chaim Kramer. Um Heim Kramer started the Breslov Research Institute uh, back in, I think it was the early 70s, because his father immigrated, his father was a, was a follower of Rabbi Nachman, immigrated to the U.S. at the turn of the last century, and was really one of the first people in North America to begin you know, spreading the teachings of Rabbi Nachman. And then... Um, I'm sorry, he's his father-in-law. Chaim is the son-in-law of this rabbi, his name, I, I forget, that immigrated and started teaching in North America the teachings of Rabbi Nachman. He passed away, Rabbi Chaim, his son-in-law, um, along with one other disciple of his father-in-law, uh, started the Breslau Research Institute in, I think it was like 72 or something like that. And, and the goal of the Research Institute was primarily to translate... Um, you know, Nachman's teachings into English and other things like that. So, anyway, so this this is a book written by um, Chaim Kramer based on, um, you know, he's obviously an Orthodox Jew, he's not, not a believer, completely based on 
Orthodox understanding relies a lot on Likute Maharan and other writings of Rabbi Nachman. So, um, so I ordered it, hoping it would show up. Passing on. And by the way, that's not in print anymore. So it, oh. it's hard to find. And when you find it, you're going to pay for it. I, yeah, it's not cheap. Um, <clears throat> oh, so sad. But. Um, I ordered it before we went to our Florida trip, hoping it would show up so I could take it with me and read it on the beach. It didn't show up before we left, and so um, unfortunately, I haven't gotten all the way through it. So we're gonna work. I'm gonna give you a review on Mashiach, who, what, and when, because that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> so we'll, we'll have to do a a, 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 a a sequel later when I finish the book. Partial cliff notes, exactly. Um, so um, we'll start with who, uh, and these are just, as I've read through those particular sections, what I've tried to do is pull out kind of tidbits along with the source, you know, of where he references the idea or thought. Um, so who is Mashiach? Um, Mashiach is understood to have existed before creation, according to Pesachim 54a. Um, the soul of Mashiach is uh, understood to be rooted in, so we're gonna, so there's a couple of couples of concepts here which are, are very important to really understanding Messiah, but so if we think about the ten spirots, the the higher three, Chokmah, Ket, uh, Keter, Crown, Chokmah's wisdom, Keter, Crown, Bina, uh, understanding, right? So the soul of Mashiach is understood to uh, be rooted in Keter, or another another Kabbalistic term is Atik. Um, which is interesting because Keter is also like um, it's the highest Sephira, right? So it's the it is the it's, it's the it's the Sephira that is uh, closest to uh, to Hashem or closest to the Ain Sof, if you want to continue with Kabbalistic terminology. Um, Mashiach will be poor, not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean poor monetarily, but poor meaning humble, right? Poor of, poor of spirit, very humble, extremely humble, riding on a donkey, of course, the reference to Zechariah 9.9. By the way, the reference for the soul of Mashiach being rooted in Keter is from the Zohar, uh, Zohar 2, 177a, and I can send, we'll post this document on the perfect mentor so you guys don't have to try to write all the stuff down to the extent you're interested. Um, Messiah will be someone born into a uh, normal family, um, according to Siak Sarfe Kodesh 183. I don't even know what that is. What is that? That is a, that's a. You say Sirach? Siak, S I A C H, Siak Sarfe. 
Kodesh, that is a um, that is a, a work, I believe, of either I believe it's either a Re Rebbe Nach Nach uh, Nachman work or maybe um, one of his disciples. Okay. Um, Messiah will descend from questionable relationships. So there's there's all these kind of paradoxical things about Messiah. Um, uh, and, and specifically, you know, the book references, you know, Lot and his daughter, and then Judah and Tamar, and all of that, and and also, and that's all come, talked about in Bereshit Rabbah, eighty-five. Right. So, born into a normal family, mm -hmm. descendants from questionable relationships. Mm -hmm. So. I guess I'm trying to picture that within Joseph and Mary, born to a normal family. Uh, the, the point about the normal family is just to say that you know he's like not to going to be born into kingship the palace or yeah. whatever. He's just going to yeah. be born into just kind of like a common family. And the question of relationships is that like his heritage, his history, his heritage, right? Okay. That he descends from these questionable relationships, which is a paradox for Messiah because right. Messiah is supposed to be. You know, top this shelf, top shelf sure. holy and all yeah. this, but yet his heritage is kind of full of all these questionable right. beginnings and questionable perfect. you know, relationships yeah. and whatever. So um, it's well, one of the paradoxes. And we talked about that a great deal here at Bellatora and in this in this class between right. um, Moses and his lineage and the stories that are told about. Uh, yeah. His deal and David and the whole, all the stories that are told yeah. about him yeah. being illegitimate and, and whatnot. Yeah, in fact, uh, we'll talk. In fact, that one actually is the next point here is that Messiah will be somebody shunned by family and community. Mm. So, where did we get that? Or, where does Judaism get that? You know, my thought would have been they get it from the story of Yosef, right? Being mm -hmm. kind of. Shunned by his brothers, and, and and that is also, I've seen that also as a as, as a reference for that. But in this book, they don't reference the story of Yosef. Uh, Rabbi Kramer references the story of David. David, yeah. And it's it's interesting because I had I don't think I had ever really heard this particular backstory, but so we know that David is a descendant. Of Ruth the Moabitess and Boaz, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who, to a certain extent, are, are a tikkun for some of those previous, mm -hmm. you know, um, strange relationships, right? But nevertheless, the Torah says a Moabite cannot enter Israel. Mm -hmm. According to the book, um, at the time. Of Boaz and Ruth, it was decided that 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 law did not apply to females and only applied to males. So therefore, Ruth was accepted hmm. as an Israelite. You know, as she attached herself, right? Right. So therefore, when she gave birth to Obed, who then gave birth to Yishai, yeah. yeah, and then Yishai had several sons and the last of his sons yeah. was David yeah eight yeah eight right and the last one was David 
according to um, according to the midrash cited here, uh, before David was born, there was a ruling that overturned the previous halacha yeah. that said, um, "No, the law applies to females too." So now David's born, but because he descends from a Moabitess and the and the law was was now understood to apply to both the prohibition of a Moabitess entering Israel was now understood to apply to both male and female. David He's host. was host, <laughs> which which is why he was sort of treated like a second class citizen to a certain extent in his own home, yeah. and he was sort of given all the jobs nobody else wanted to do, like right. go. You know, Go, go, go see, hang out with the go, sheep, and, yeah, and go see your brothers at the at the battle. I mean, you, you're not going to go to the battle, but they, they're right. So, so it's interesting that according to that particular midrash, uh, and he also references Psalm sixty nine nine uh, as a another proof text for this. But uh, David was originally not considered Jewish, and would have therefore not been fit to be a king. Wow. But when when Samuel, who was the prophet, the anointed prophet of the day, shows up. He's introduced to all the boys. Samuel anoints yeah. David as king, which was also in essence saying, no, no, no. The original halakha is the correct halakha. Right. Uh, but there was this period of time where David was sort of a man out. Hmm. Almost kind of like Joseph, because he's also perceived as an Egyptian uh, of sorts by his brothers. Right. And then we've also almost got a similar imagery with Moshe, because Sephora um, um, uh, and her family, they say that an Egyptian man saved us. Mm-hmm. Right. So they both, all three of them, um, seem to have this stint Right. Where they're not perceived as being Jewish, which is very interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, I because I had not heard that, I was not familiar with that particular midrash. So that was that, that one was new for me. So it was pretty yeah, cool. cool. Um, he's he, the Messiah will have exceptional leadership abilities, and and he talks a lot about uh, compares them a lot to David. Right, David was just just this natural leader, um, and Messiah will be will have that same just natural leadership ability. Because after all, when Messiah comes to set up the the kingdom and all that, he literally has to convince the entire world that no, this is the one true God. And everybody needs to, I mean, so he, you know, for him to be able to make all the arguments that need to be made for all people at whatever point and walk they are in their life and whatever baggage they have, you know, he's 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 this exceptional leader. He's also this exceptional speaker. Um, he's endowed by heaven to accomplish his mission, according to the Zohar, Zohar two seven uh, b through eight b and some other various obscure texts that I didn't bother listing. Um, uh, he also talks about this, that Messiah is 
the one, the Messiah is the one who brings order out of chaos, and the reference there goes back to Bereshit 2 4, um, where we have the spirit of Elohim hovering over the waters, right? You know, when there's this chaotic, you know, um, tofu by tofu. this chaotic point in the existence of the of the earth, the spirit of Elohim is hovering over the waters. Chazal said that is the spirit of Mashiach, Bereshit Rabbah um, 2. And the Zohar picks up on that and, you know, also takes that idea and runs with it that the, this idea of of the Messiah being able to bring calm to these extremely chaotic situations um, you know for me that one you know is a is a very unique Ramez to Yeshua because he's the only person in any Jewish writing that I'm familiar with that's ever described as or, or claimed to have hovered over waters mm-hmm. in the midst of a chaotic temp- tempest type situation. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. Um, we have Moses who split the water, we have Joshua who split the water, we have Eli uh, and Yahu yeah. and Elisha who split the water. But there's only one man in history who is claimed to have hovered over the waters. That's kind of cool. Uh, a lot of discussion about the nose. Sanhedrin 93b. You know, the he'll nose? judge by the oh yeah, the smell. Yeah, he'll judge by the sense of smell, and the nose is kind of just this really key uh, sort of attribute of of Messiah. Uh, he'll be known as. Uh, Ben David, Sanhedrin 96b through 99a. Uh, Shiloh is also another name for the Messiah, Bereshit 4910, the prophecy of, of um, Jacob to his sons. Also, uh, uh, Targum Ankelos confirms that Shiloh is to be understood as Messiah. Uh, also known as Ben Yosef, Sukkah 52a. Ben Yosef, so the other thing that was interesting to me as I went through this book, is the book really, because depending on who you talk to, you kind of get the idea that there's going to be two messiahs. Right. But this book really kind of portrays it not so much as two literal messiahs, that Ben David and Ben Yosef are really two concepts of the Mm -hmm. messiah. Um, And specifically, Ben Yosef represents this idea of the Zadik. So Ben Ben Yosef is a this really this true zadik, and um, what makes a zadik someone who has moral uh, strict moral code, specifically when it comes to uh, sexuality and sexual related matters. Where do we get this? We get this from Yosef who lived in the house, in Potiphar's house, for at least a year and was assaulted on a regular basis by Potiphar's wife and yet never, never succumbed to the temptation. So therefore, a tzaddik um, is 
not just somebody who is good and does good things, but specifically a Zadik is someone who has this strict moral code with respect to sexuality. Is, is a Zadik not also associated with a righteousness that can be used uh, in suffering for others? That, yeah, a, a Zadik can atone for others. I mean, we've got all kinds of stories in the Midrash about, you know, sure. this, this guy had, you know, kidney stones for 20 years, um, and, and this town was, was great because of it, and as soon as he died, you know, they have, you know, yeah. whatever. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the book, the, this book doesn't really focus too much on that aspect of the righteous atoning for the unrighteous, but yeah, I mean, clearly there's other yeah. Jewish sources that talk a lot about that. Um, and so, so anyway, this this uh, strict moral code that that's discussed in Zohar one fifty nine b. It talks about some other names for Messiah, uh, other possible names for Messiah. Menachem, mm-hmm. uh, Shiloh we mentioned. That's in Sanhedrin uh, too. Yeah. Yinon and Hanina. Um, that's that's discussed in Sanhedrin ninety eight b. And what's interesting is the acronym, the acrostic of those four names spells Moshiach. Huh. Kind of That's That's funny. Did so, the same guy come up with all four of those, or did they come over over no, time? No, it's different ones. It's, it's really? a discussion where the, the question is asked, what's the name of Messiah? No. And, you know, Nobody said Jack. Rabbi, Rabbi Yinon's yeah, Rabbi Yinon says his name's Yinon, right? Or the school of Yinon says his name's Yinon, right. and, you know, so forth and so on. But uh, but each one of those names means something, which is also potentially an attribute of the Messiah yeah, as well. So, a Menachem specifically means comforter, right. so he'll be someone that you know, brings comfort, peace, etc. Uh, now, what's interesting is in the book, uh, he actually says straight out, Moshe is Mashiach. Which is true. Not just the first redeemer, Moshe is also the last redeemer. Hmm. Really? Um, Shemot Rabbah 2.4, uh, which is commenting on Ecclesiastes 1.9. Uh, and then it's also discussed in the Tikkune Zohar. Um, uh, what, other, what other proof he references is the fact that, that Shiloh equals Shiloh, which is everybody agrees is, is, a, is a name or a reference uh, for Messiah, equals Moshe and the Matria, 345. Yeah. <clears throat> so, to me, what that, if, to me, um, what that says to me is, again, the character in the Tanakh that's going to teach us the absolute most about Messiah Moshe is going to be Moshe Rabbeinu. So now he died. So he's not the Messiah. Right. But he could be the Messiah. (laughs) But according to... He will be the Messiah. Zohar, he's the Messiah. But he's not. But he is. But he will. Yeah. Okay, there it is. um, Rashi commenting on Numbers 27 says Messiah will be able to go 40 days with no sustenance. Huh. Kind of cool. Uh, I've seen this movie. Wait, what was that reference again? Numbers which? Numbers 27, 
Because that's where Moshe did. Anyway, yeah, because it's tying back right, to right. Moshe, right? Um, tefillah, prayer, tefillah will be the weapon with which Messiah conquers the world. Heard that. That's which cool. is to say, his mouth. Mm. Right? So he's, the prayers, the things that he says with his mouth, uh, specifically prayer, um, will be what he uses to subdue the world when he comes. Uh, Baruch 60b, uh, also referring to Isaiah 56. Which also ties in with, with, with Moshe and the um, Midrashic tradition that he slays the Egyptian guy by speaking Hashem's name, yeah. and the guy just drops dead. Sounds like an out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of Revelation. Yeah, I mean, it specifically talks about it in the context of it's a weapon. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so that is just some some ideas around who he is. Um, what is Messiah? Um, and and it was really more in the context of what will Messiah do. And so some of this we already kind of talked about in some mm-hmm. of the previous classes, so we can kind of move through this, I think, faster. But obviously, um, he will uh, bring the entire world under God's dominion uh, and submission. Yad ha, ha, yad ha Hazaha and Malachim 11. Uh, he will uh, build the Holy Temple, uh, Mishneh Torah and other sources. One thing that's interesting about that, again, goes back to Moshe, because as we've recently, as we read, you know, in, in Shemot, um, how was the tabernacle constructed? Well, all the people contributed. Right. Everybody brought supplies and donated, you know, materials. But at the end of the day, they got everything ready, but it was Moshe that assembled it. Yeah. So in like manner the people will prepare everything that's needed for the third temple but yeah. it will be Messiah who erects it mm-hmm. that's kind of cool I think Ezekiel bears that up yeah uh, he will be someone who's completely immersed in Torah written and oral traditions uh, obviously he'll gather in all the dispersed Jews from around the world mm-hmm. um, I don't Again, main main weapon is prayer. We just kind of talked about that. Um, he'll bring the the first um, the prologue to the book. You know, starts out painting this picture of the messianic era, and it's like, like you know, you read certain Christian material about heaven, and you know, you get you get kind of the you, know, you get this sort of dreamy, you know, that nothing on 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 this guy's description of the Messianic age. Really? I mean, it was just like, you know, I mean, it was, it, was, it was... But anyway, he will... Messiah will bring ultimate joy, ultimate peace. Everyone will have total, complete wealth. Everybody will walk in complete, total health. I mean, it, you know, it's just like... Perfect. No, it's oh, paradise, it's right? Perfect. So... Um, he increases the knowledge of God and Torah specifically. It goes into talking about da'at. And of course, da'at also, you know, there's the whole deep Kabbalistic understanding of what, what that is and, and how it relates. But um, 
lot lot deeper discussion than we'll have time for. But that's that's also what Messiah will do. He will uh, he will obviously judge righteously. He will increase the fear of Hashem throughout the throughout the earth, mm. and he will reveal hidden aspects of the Torah and of God. So I mean, all that stuff. I think we I don't think there wasn't much new in there for me. Some of the references. Mm were new, but I think all the concepts I was pretty much familiar with. Um, and when you go through a list like that, just to, you know, to tie it back to the, the reason for this, it, it, Yeshua did very little of that. Yeah. Some of those things, mm-hmm. you, could, you could argue, you know, he was clarifying the Torah and so forth like that, but by and large, he didn't do those things. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not surprising that today's Orthodox community says, come on, what are you talking about? He doesn't, he doesn't fit the bill. Mm-hmm. Which still makes me go, okay, fine. What about the guys back then? And why did they say so? Right. so. Yep. And there's a, just a reference to that secrets and everything. In the Zohar, it was saying that near the days of Messiah, even infants will find secrets and wisdom in the, uh, in the Torah. Which is yeah, the child will lead them. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Hmm. Nice. Mashiach when? So, uh, Mashiach has to come by no later than six thousand from creation. Right. Sanhedrin ninety-seven a, because every day is a thousand oh. years. That whole that whole messianic era is. Black. Unfortunately, that's that's beyond my stretch here. So well, let's not take anything. You know, I'm just saying it's not a guarantee. You know, but right. of course, unless they figure out something in science, we're, yeah, yeah. we're a whole lot closer than anybody before us. So think about it. Uh, you know, most people are average. Um. So, and it's interesting because he talks about when in that particular section he says. I'm writing, it was 1995 when he wrote the book. So he said, I'm writing this in the year 57, whatever it was, and it was exactly, I think, 250 years to 6,000, right? Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. So, you know, so he said, according to our sages, well, we are forbidden to try to predict the exact day. It has to be it can be no later than 6,000 from creation. Um, he talks about uh, um, the birth pains of the Messiah, mm-hmm. the footsteps of the Messiah, which is the conditions leading up to the arrival of Messiah. Uh, references Isaiah 26 for that and, and some other other references, but I think I think we're probably all fairly familiar with those all those concepts. Um, there's a there's a in in Sanhedrin ninety eight a there's a statement in response to when will uh, when will Messiah come? Um, and the response is uh, it's God. It says if God's responding, He says, "I God will hasten it." In its due time, mm-hmm. and Chazal, being who Chazal are, I just love. They said, "Wait a minute, 
that doesn't make any sense because if it come if he comes in his in in his due time, then it hasn't been hastened. And if it's hastened, then it's not in the due time. So how does that statement make sense? Well, it makes sense because hastened means if the generation has is ready to receive him, he'll come. If the generation has repented, etc., mm. the redemption will be hastened. But if not, it'll come in its due time. Mm. Um, uh, also references Isaiah sixty twenty two in that discussion. Uh, there was a discussion about a, uh, a phrase from Genesis seven talking about Noah, where it says, "In the six hundredth year of the life of Noah." And goes on. The Zohar picks up on this and says um, that the beginning of the uh, how do they describe it? like the beginning of the end, as it were, or the beginning of the birth pains of Messiah comes in the six hundredth year of the sixth millennia, which actually, which so that would be the year 5600 on the Jewish calendar, which would correspond to roughly, well not roughly, would correspond to 1840 on the Gregorian calendar. Hmm. And he talks about why, what happened at that time that would begin to set the stage for the, for the coming of Mashiach. What in the world happened in 1840? Sure. The, beginning, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Oh. Because now we have this extreme and you know at that point you now have electricity right right you know you have uh, locomotive True. you know you have all of this people going to and fro and, right and right so it increasing. sets the stage for this extreme acceleration of all these unusual conditions that had never existed yeah sure. with daniel 12 right? yeah exactly yeah. same source uh-huh. i thought maybe it was a reference to the fact that that was when i think the first jewish colony of jerusalem comes back it's in like 1848 or something like that they um 45 something like that they they established a little colony in what Yemen Moshe with a little windmill is today um just across the valley yeah and I thought maybe Nachman was around the 1800s I thought that was what you were saying uh, no he didn't he didn't it was not in the context of Nachman but um and then um then he talks a lot about you know Eliyahu right because obviously Eliyahu has to Come, come, a day before Messiah, according to Hazal, that's discussed in Erevin forty three b. We're forbidden to try to calculate the exact day. In fact, there's sort of a curse, basically, mm-hmm. on somebody who would try to calculate the exact day, discussed in Sanhedrin ninety seven b. We need to tell the Christians that. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's going to let Michael Rude know that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're having her next a. week. <laughs> Sanhedrin 97a, Chazal make the statement there are three things that come unexpectedly Messiah, a windfall, and a scorpion. Messiah, a windfall, and a scorpion. Um, Sanhedrin 98a, again, some more discussion on when will Messiah. When when will Messiah come? Today, right? In that whole story of uh, Yehoshua ben Levi, who That's goes and asks the lepers, yeah. yeah. So then he uh, says he lied to me, right? Yeah. Right. He says no today, as it says 
today if you will but heed his voice right. meaning you didn't Which heed is his voice so he didn't come right. right so it gets back to that same idea right Messiah the, if the generation is ready he comes but if not hmm. you know he doesn't one of the cool parts of that little story I read in like the commentary to the 798 it has a reference to that leper, the leper story he's the he hangs out with the lepers and he's bandaging the wounds and they say that the normal way to do it is to take them all off at one time and then put them all back on at one redress, time. Redress, yeah. And redress them. But, but Messiah is there taking one off at a time, putting the next one back on at a time, and he's doing it very you know, carefully, each one. And he's like, why are you doing it this way? And it's like, well, it's because that way he can leave at a moment's notice. He didn't have to bandage up nine guys before he leaves. He's just got to fix the one, then he can get out of there. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So that is the partial book review on cool. who, what, and when. I like it. Uh, so, so, so far into the book, would you recommend the book? Uh, so far, I, I would, with one caveat. What's that? Uh, that I don't know if you heard, the book's out of print. Really? So, oh. you know, when I, because I went to the Breslov Institute bookstore, yeah. it's not there. Huh. And then I, there's a few other online Jewish bookstores that I frequent regularly, and they one of them had it for like twenty eight bucks or something. Boom! I ordered it. Next day I get an email. Oh, sorry, so, we don't yeah. have it. It's not no longer in print. You know, uh, uh, yeah. So the only place I could find it was on Amazon, but I paid a lot of money for it. Yeah. So. So unless you, unless you you really want the book, which for me, you know, I want to know what Judaism yeah. says, yeah. right? So I'm willing to, you know, I bookshop had the means and I was willing to add it to my library. But unless you're willing to do that, it's you, you know, or unless you get lucky and find it cheap somewhere, um, it's pretty expensive. Okay, so how are you planning to get it off that table? <laughs> Pick it up. <laughs> well, good. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. And uh, it really is. Uh, it really sounds like a, a neat, uh, a neat deal here. I didn't realize the guy was a rabbi. Yeah, and he's actually. Uh, I did. I did a YouTube search, and he's actually got some video Kramers out there on some. YouTube videos, but they're pretty old, so they're kind of not the really high quality. Stuff, they're yeah. kind of grainy stuff, but it's it's like that one so. with uh, uh, Pearl Mutter. Yeah, it's just such a pain that to listen to. All right, Joshua, you've got uh, about ten minutes. Give us uh, give us something. Quick little summary. Yeah, um, but uh, for those who, uh, if if I can just uh, tee this up for him, um, you know, we have the entire Talmud here. You are welcome to come here, sit in this room after washing your hands, read anything you want, leave it on the table, go. Okay? I, the only person who's allowed to, to take these out of, the, uh, out of the residence is the heir apparent. This is like the, uh, the Library of Congress. <laughs> you can come and read anytime you that's want. That's right. For that's free. right. That's for free. But you have to leave it And there. you can't stuff anything in your pants and leave like some of these other people <laughs> did. Um, but yeah, Pete's the only one that takes them out. But if you want to come here and read this stuff, it is here for you anytime you want. And uh, for those of you who are, who are uh, iPad guys, what are we paying? Nine ninety nine or something a month? Um, you know, it's it's the forty year plan to pay for the for the for the Talmud. But 
they have your house first, but yeah. But I tell you what, for ten bucks a month yeah. uh, on the iPad, yeah. it is really dramatic. I actually find it better than. I mean, it is it is verbatim what you see here? It's because it's really just pictures, and they're they're uh, they're working with the with the pictures. Um, so you can see it exactly as it is here with all the shading and, and all that stuff. But I like the iPad version better because you literally can search for the word Messiah and search the entire Talmud. Mm, cool. And if you don't happen to own the particular uh, volume because it hasn't even been put out yet, you know, it sends you to the store to buy it. Of course, you can buy it, but you won't get it until they're done with it. So... But at least you can search the whole thing. And that, to me, is a whole lot better than the... Uh, I don't know if you were with us when Rick Spurlock yeah. gave us the PDF thing. Yeah. And it's oh, what yeah. is it, the Sensino edition yeah, of the... the and it's this absolutely ginormous yeah. PDF. Like and he says, oh, no, you can, you can search on it. And he searches it like three and a half minutes later. Right. You know, he's starting to get the first little hit. Yeah. yeah. So this is amazingly cool. But the... Uh, I, I did pull it out uh, at Joshua's recommendation and read through it, and it is, it is amazing. So, yeah. So just a little quick sort of summary high points that I thought were interesting. Um, hopefully, some of you got a chance to read it. Um, I, we included a link yep. on the uh, mandatory email. Um, it's free, so that's another option too. I mean, yep. You got no excuse. Yes, exactly right. Um, the uh, the interesting you mentioned the timing thing because they go spend a lot of time on timing. One of the things that stood out to me that that was kind of cool is. We're so used to focusing on, it's going to be the year 2015, the year 2000, 1989. You know, we're going to have like this time frame idea of when Messiah is coming. And Judaism, it's all about events. This happens. Messiah is going to come when this happens. Messiah is going to come peace. when this happens. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. Um, it's going to be all, the, the generation is going to be all righteous. No, the generation is going to be all wicked. Either one. You know, it's it basically um, focusing on things that are going to happen. One thing that they mentioned that I thought was kind of cool is um, uh, uh, Rabbi Eliezer says um, as is written for before these days there was no hire for man nor hire for beast neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction and um, I thought they highlight specifically like the economic disaster that befalls prior to Messiah appearing mm -hmm. and um, it's intriguing because um, Samuel at the end of that passage I don't know who's I'm not sure exactly who Samuel is. He gets mentioned several times, but not with the, the rabbi name, which I thought was odd. He's just one of the rabbis. One of the rabbis. rabbis. Yeah. Shmuel. Shmuel. Shmuel says that all prices are equal. So basically, like, the economy is, is terrible and everything kind of, like, evens out because it's all, like, it's all a mess. Um, and um, it's intriguing that it comes up because it reminds me, um, and I want to just make a disclaimer here and say that I found cool things that tie back to Yeshua and the Apostolic Scriptures in the Talmud. That's not to say that the Talmud was trying to do that. I think the problem is probably trying not to do that sometimes. So um, for me, it was more about like an opportunity. Not like I'm not really here trying to prove Yeshua as a Messiah. I feel like I'm, I see it already as he is. So I'm just tying things in that I think are cool to, uh, to line up with that. And, and some things that are interesting that maybe don't line up and just wondering why. But um, this one stood out to me because it reminded me of Revelation chapter 6. Um, the third of the four horsemen that emerges is famine. Right. And uh, in Revelation 6, 6, it says, And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Um, which, again, has to do with economic disaster and complications. But what's intriguing about that is mm -hmm. that 
Um, it's not everything. So, like, the, I don't know um, how you would interpret the all prices are equal line, but one perception might be that things that normally cost a lot, they're doing just fine. The things that don't normally cost very much uh, rise in price, so things right. kind of even out. So that reminded me of Revelation, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, and going back again to some of what you had said, we're talking about you know, the Talmud is being written down and codified in like you know, the hundreds of years range after Messiah Yeshua, depending on So you've got that section. And then, um, but these concepts are old, way old. Right. And uh, the Apostolic uh, Scriptures repeatedly cite similar concepts to what you see in the Talmud at times. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, another thing I think that stood out to me um, in talking about the uh, the Messiah, they um, we mentioned the, the leprous one, or the one that hangs out with the lepers. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Again, Yeshua is, that's like a, almost like a theme. I mean, he heals how many people with leprosy throughout the stories? Um, shows up over and over and over again. Um, and so that's what I was saying when you were talking earlier, looking for like those little small hints. It's like, no, you, you know, Yeshua hasn't done big X. But there's little tiny things along the way that stand out. And uh, that was one of the ones that I think was kind of like, was interesting. It's like, you know, why, why of all things would this vision that he has with Elijah and whatever else, why would he highlight that? Right. Well, I think it's a good point that, you know, it's, it's not like, I mean, some of the people uh, are portrayed as quickly acknowledging that Yeshua was the Messiah. But to your point, the Pharisees did not do that. Mm -mm. The Pharisees argued and were berated by him. They, some of them ate with him. And obviously, many of them followed him through the Galilee and the fields and so forth. So um, it wasn't... Uh, One of them snuck out in the middle of the night to come meet him. Right. So it wasn't as an immediate kind of deal. Right. You know? And I think the, um, the text, if not some kind of commentary, has always made me uh, believe that uh, when... Uh, When he comes to him at night, he's speaking in the plural as if he's he's been sent mm. by the rest of them. You know, mm -hmm. we know that, you know, you're you're a great teacher. We know this and that. So it's obviously they've been talking about him as well. So um, it's encouraging to me that they obviously gave him uh, a good vetting, and and many of them chose to to accept him as as the Messiah. I, I think uh, when I read through. Uh, Sanhedrin 98. The, the thing that came up to me was how often they were at odds. It's a lot of debate. I, I mean, it's amazing that, and they don't, and they don't come to a conclusion, which is normal in the Talmud, I get right. that, but in this case I was just struck by when will he come? He'll come when everybody's righteous. No, you're wrong. He's going to come when everybody's righteous. Okay, let's move on. What... <laughs> But, but to me, that to me that kind of the answer is yes, right? <clears throat> Which is consistent with Yeshua. Okay, that's good. The generation was wicked. Yeah. He came, and he, you know, and he said, "Repent, because yeah, the kingdom is at hand." And and how often have I longed to gather you together? Right. They didn't, and so he did not bring redemption. Didn't Messiah Yeshua bring the redemption? No, he no, didn't. He didn't. Right. In my view, it's not because he wasn't able. It was because 
they weren't. They weren't willing. Yeah. Right, and you get, like, get that impression from, from the text. And interestingly enough, you mentioned that. I think it's really cool because one of the points that they come up with is if the generation is worthy, he will come, and they quote that passage from Daniel, son of man on the clouds. Yeah. And if, he's, if the generation's not worthy, he'll come in riding a donkey. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool because, wow. of course, we see Yeshua shows up right riding a donkey. Wow. Interestingly enough, for those who <laughs> like to quibble with the accuracy of the apostolic scriptures, um, the donkey riding incident shows up in all four Gospels. It's, it's like a huge deal. And it's a huge deal of Judaism. I didn't realize this, but the donkey, the donkey, uh, donkey of Messiah... The donkey in Kabbalah is incredible. Right. In fact, uh, um, some mystical elements have, are, have linked it to the idea of it being related to his controlling and wielding the um, uh, material world, because the donkey represents like material success. Hmm. Um, I've heard there's even like a, a slang phrase in modern Hebrew where someone who's called the donkey of Messiah refers to someone who does somebody else's dirty work. I mean, it's like it's such a common concept that it mm. even has it gotten into secular Israeli culture, mm. um, which that was really fascinating. So that was interesting that the Gospels, all four, mentioned that. Um, there is a caveat here, and that is that at least according to Shmuel in the in the Talmud, the donkey has a hundred different colors. So no, it's the horse. Well, no, no, no he, that's the point. Is he's the the guy, the king comes and says. Well, I have a horse. So I can a, a horse. donkey? Let's get him a horse. Get him a horse. And Shmuel goes, well, do you have a hundred colored horse? And so the commentary is saying, well, the reason why he's saying this is the donkey is supposed does. to have a hundred different hues. Um, I think that's interesting, though, because in but my perspective... what color is... What's the primary color of the donkey? Chamor Lavan. No. So, yes. There we go. <laughs> that works. So, that's the... Yeah, anyway, that's a whole other But now I was going to side off of that to say that, like, obviously interpreting that is another matter altogether. What does that mean? Um, if we accept Shmuel's point as being valid, um, I see in Scripture a lot of times you get, like, multiple um, fulfillments of prophecies, almost like layering. Um, we met Moshe, and then the following Redeemer, you've got... Um, uh, it's like the first exile and the return from exile is prophesied. And there's the second exile and the return from exile is prophesied. And they're both prophesied by sometimes the same people, but it's like they're almost like, you know, layered on top of each other. So with this one, I don't think it's anything, I don't, I don't have any problem with saying that Yeshua legitimately fulfilled the prophecy of coming in riding on a donkey. And that is check. He did that as something that Messiah is supposed to do. And maybe he'll come in riding a hundred colored one later. Well, I don't think he needs to, because if I recall the text, one, one group says he comes in the clouds. Right. If the generation is worthy. Well, you, right. Yeshua said. And Yeshua no, cites the, that. The angel said. No, well, Yeshua, no, Yeshua said, cites it three times. the Son of Man come Oh, that's twice. right. That's right. Yeah. He references it twice. And the angel says it after he leaves. Right. What, what are you looking at, guys? You know? He's coming back to the same way he left. Yeah. yeah, and then Yeshua references it in his... Um, his discussion with the disciples about the end of days. Yeah. He also references it to. Um, he kind of hints at it, alludes to it in his, in his debate with the um, the Sanhedrin uh, during his trial when they say, "Are you the Son of Man?" And you're like, you know, you will see me riding uh, coming in on the on the right hand of power or something like that. Yeah. So again, you get right. that that connection. Yeah. Um, and uses the Son of Man reference a lot, which is it's interesting. It's amazing how often he he was lining up with the Talmud before it was even written. Yeah, it's ah. very interesting. And I think, I'm sorry, just one more quick thing. Um, like I said, I think that the, the donkey situation stood out to me, and I can't remember where I heard this. It may have been, um, oh, I can't remember now. Anyway, but it's an interesting thought that no one else claiming to be Messiah that I know of in history has ever done that. Coming on a donkey? Coming on a donkey with crowds of people supporting them and whatever else. That to me seems like a pretty easy thing to do. 
but it hasn't been done, which I think, to me, that stands out. It's like the disciples the, and the gospel writers clearly saw that. And you're asking, how did they know? Yeah. They saw that as being like a clenching, defining sure. moment. Sure. This means something. Sorry. So one comment to tack on to your statement about prophecies kind of have, you know, near and far fulfillment layering and all that. That, according to Hazal, that is absolutely the fact because there's a discussion, right, that says, there's a discussion in the Talmud that says there were thousands upon thousands of prophets in Israel during the mm-hmm. First and Second mm-hmm. Temple, uh, primarily First Temple, but why are they not, why do we not have their prophecies recorded? Hmm. Chazal say, because their prophecies only pertained to their generation, hmm. but all the prophets that we have in the Tanakh are there because their prophecies are not just to their generation, but hmm. to all right. generations. Right. That's good. So by definition, their prophecies have to have significance and multiple fulfillment and that sort of thing. So otherwise they wouldn't be in the talk. Right. right. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm kind of running over here. No, 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 no. Um, take your time. This is We're, good. Yeah, but, but, yeah but, this is good. This is what we want. We, he's going to go next week. Um, Sanhedrin 98b also has an interesting reference. You had asked the question, and again, I want to be careful how I say this. Um, you had asked the question, what does Judaism do with Isaiah 53? And I think there are two sides on that, which I think there are two sides on that. Um, but interestingly enough, in St. Andrew 98b, um, this is the rabbi said, his name is the leper scholar. Right. As it is written, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him a leper, is how they translate that, which is interesting. Smitten of God and afflicted. So um, they're tying it in to his being afflicted as being the servant who's afflicted. So it's interesting that that's sometimes a challenge brought. Well, it doesn't really that they're talking about a single person talking about Israel. The answer is yes. It's talking about both, and there's Talmudic reference saying that it, that it refers to them. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that kind of gave towards the end here. Talmud, though, you have um, Targumim, right? Yeah. That say it's sure it's referring to. Uncle's is big on that stuff. Um, kind of just to sort of wrap up towards the end, and if you haven't read it, like I said, it's free. It's very easy to get into. Um, and it's co- not that long. No, it really was pretty easy. I think technically, if you're listening to his commentary, it'd probably be better to start with like 96 and go yeah, all the well, way through 97, 99. Well, the, the page before on mine in 97 is actually yes. kicking off a lot of that stuff. There's a couple references in 93, too. Yeah. Um, one of the things they the mentioned in this one is on uh, the, the birth pangs of Messiah. And actually, one of, the, one of the guys in the Talmud, he says, I don't even want it. I don't want to be here. Messiah shows up, and they're like, "What are you talking they went about?" For pages on that, and he's like, "Oh, but it's going to be bad." And they're like, "Well, it's already bad." And they list all the things about normal life. He's like, "No, no, no." They say that Messiah, when he comes, like before he comes, the birth pains Messiah, that the that the men will be in such agony as though they're giving birth. Holding their I don't want to be there for that. <laughs> um, so it's like it's just interesting because Yeshua almost alludes to the same thing when he's talking about his coming to his disciples. He's saying like. Pray it's not in winter. Pray it's right. not. I mean, it's like it's it's like if it wasn't for the sake of the elect, everyone would die. Like, yeah. and I mean, he talks about birth pains. Yeah, and that's a big, big uh, uh, language that they use a lot. Yes, sir. And that that's really cool too, because that particular part, there's a reference in the Zohar that says like, so the prevailing attitude 
is to still await his coming, despite how awful it was going to be based on what you would ah, read in okay. Sanhedrin 98. And that, even just awaiting him, the uh, they were saying, like, basically, uh, even thereafter we shall merit no more than, and this is a quote from the Zohar, sitting in the shadow of his donkey's dung. Donkey's dung, that was that's that's one there. Basically, like, that's all you're going to get, and it's still worth waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how amazing. That's like, we're like Colin has a whole teaching on the donkey stone as it pertains to Messiah. It's kind of cool. Huh. But um, <clears throat> one thing that... Don't don't tell your wives that. We, we're we're going to study donkey's dung tomorrow yeah. night. Yeah. But, now I'm curious. That's right. <laughs> one thing I thought was interesting, so he's got this, this is in the what section, and he's got this chapter 10, the wondrous advisor, right? And it starts out with a quote from Isaiah 9, which is, you know, a child will be born to us. Sure, yeah, we sing it all the time. Yeah. His name shall be Pele Yoetz, parentheses, wonders advisor, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then he picks up with the tail end of the verse. Hmm. Right. Right. That's how there's a manipulation on how to interpret that. So, I mean... The decision was made to to print it that way. Right. So I, I, you know, I, I can't help to wonder. Well, none of the other, you know, opening verses for the other chapters does he decide to abbreviate. Right. But he does on this one. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Um. To kind of summarize, uh, hit the end here. He, we, we mentioned previously this whole idea that he can't be dead is only a reference to present tense because they had this whole section at the end of Senate 98 talking about if he's alive he's like rabbi so and so if he's dead he's like Daniel or he is Daniel you know it's like they, they go back and forth with um, with all of that and um, then they have an interesting little parable at the very end of San Andrew 98 where he says um, kind of incur- basically giving a warning to people who are looking forward to the messianic age who wouldn't be worthy of it, and he's because he, the parable is basically between the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and the the Jews are um, are like lined up, I guess, as the if I understand correctly, it's kind of confusing depending on which translation you're reading. But the idea is they have a bat and a and a rooster, right. and they're waiting for dawn, and um, <clears throat> and like the, the the and the basically the idea is like the the bat's like I can't wait for dawn, and the rooster's like why you can't see and the point being that like the people who are looking forward to the end but are not in the right group are going to be sorely disappointed yeah yeah uh, which i thought was interesting anyway so that's just kind of a quick little summary um again there's a lot of stuff in there it does go through all the names that you mentioned earlier um in fact at one point it even goes so far as to argue that menachem who is the son of hezekiah didn't die or something like that he's taken to the garden of eden and that he is messiah Really? So there's a lot of interesting um, traditions and things kind of buried throughout the text. And as you pointed out, a lot of debate, which I think, I think when, when we're talking about how do we fit in with Judaism, I, I would say, you know, from a mainstream perspective, we don't fit in. And I don't think you can argue with that. But I do think that there is room within Judaism for discussion on this topic. Um, and it's not all settled, but it kind of is. And, and so I think that there's, um, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile discussion. I do too. Well, thank you both. Um, We kick off next week with you.
I think the, the, the couple of questions that I, I, we need to cover at the end of this that, that are coming to light are, does it matter? Does it matter? Mm -hmm. Today, if he is, was, can't be, should be, might be, will be the Messiah, does it matter? What, what difference does it make? And we kind of touched on that before, but I don't think we got a good answer. Um, second is, and I think, uh, I think Pete was asking somebody last week, if he is the Messiah, how does that change our walk? Hmm. And you know, what I'm hearing is if we believe the apostolic writings, then you have to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. If you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, then you have to believe the apostolic writings. And if you believe the apostolic writings, then we now have a different twist than the Tanakh was giving with regard to the identity of the Messiah. That part still bothers me. And by that I mean... In the writing of the Tanakh, I don't see that the identity, knowing the identity of the Messiah, is as is a, is a big deal at all. Whereas in the apostolic writings, it is the only thing. And if you don't have the identity of the Messiah, you've blown it. And if you know the identity of the Messiah, and then you decide you really don't think he is the Messiah, that's an even bigger deal. That, in fact, that's even worse than not believing him that he was the Messiah in the first place. So those questions, I think, are completely different from this issue of how do we know who the Messiah is and it, does Yeshua fit the bill and, and all of that. So let's kind of think about mm -hmm. those so that we can talk about them, you know? Because mm -hmm. I think it's important. I mean, if it doesn't matter because, he's, because he died, I get that. But he rose. But then he left. So he's not here. So what difference does it make? Because if it doesn't make any difference, why are we arguing about it? Hmm. Especially if we're going to be proven right when he finally does come. And based on your math, you may not be here, but we know I'm not going to be here. So hmm. I think that's, that, that's the concept of just, well, it, does, it doesn't matter. It's just not in the apostolic writings. It's, it's exactly the opposite. It did matter. It was so important. They died for it. And, and quite frankly, that's one of the proofs, um, logical proofs, that the apostolic writings and the whole story of the resurrection is in fact correct. Because, I mean, to believe that these guys made it up and then went to their deaths and convinced others to go to their deaths is, I mean, Keep it a secret. I mean, if they had the body, and we got guys breaking into hotels to steal documents from the Democrats, and they can't even keep that a secret. They stole a, a rabbi's body, overpowered two Roman guards, or paid them off. Yeah. So, so these are, I think, are good questions. So let's tackle those at the end. Um, but I am learning so much, and I'm. Are you guys trying to write all this stuff down and trying? 
you know, categorize this? Because I am, and it's, well, it's overwhelming. But, so I think what we should do is, why don't, why don't just everybody take a little piece of it, and that way if we need to prove who the Messiah is, we just get the ten of us together, and, yeah. you know, boom, there we go, we got it. All right. One week left of the cleanse. I thank you, Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. Shannon us that I do from time to time. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, we will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as for us, we will trust in you. Amen. Amen.